Today, as we look a little further and we dig a little further into the Scriptures, I want us to discover further what kind of a father we have. This is so important because a lot of Christian people have even believed a lie, a lie about God, a lie that's been formulated by some authority in their life, a lie that has been formulated perhaps by a false cult, or maybe uh, their own heart has deceived them. But for whatever reason, they've been lied to and embraced the lie. And so what we need to do is take the Word of God and take the truth and obliterate the lie with it by looking into the Bible. So let's do that. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles and turn back to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah and the 29th chapter. We were talking last time about what a heavenly father we have. Remember the guy who says, what a country? We as Christian people ought to say, what a God. What a, what a father we have. Back in the, I guess about the turn of the 19th century, uh, Aaron Burr had amassed quite a fortune but he was also known as a politician. He had, uh, was vice president of the U.S. and also running for governor of New York at one time against Alexander Hamilton. And you'd remember Hamilton is the guy, his face is on the $10 bill, I believe. And you talk about a rough campaign. We, we have our mudslinging today, but this got really, really ugly until there was a bitter, bitter rivalry between these two. And after the election was over, uh, I think it was Burr who challenged uh, Alexander Hamilton to a duel, a duel to the death with pistols. That's how they handled it back in those days. And on July 11th of 1804, they did duel to the death, and Alexander Hamilton died. And Burr was immediately tried for treason, but he got off, but everyone turned on him. His reputation was shot. He was a, a broken man, and, and, and everybody abandoned him except his daughter, Theodosia, the, 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 the cherished possession of his life. And in 1813, some years later, that daughter uh, boarded a ship in Charleston, and it was bound for New York, but it went down at sea. She never arrived. And it devastated Aaron Burr. In the years that followed, he would go to the dock of New York there by the battery almost daily, looking for some kind of news about his daughter, but he never received any, and he died a, a broken man. But you see there the heart of a father. And it really says it all. Here in Jeremiah 29, however, it talks about our Heavenly Father. And we read as we did last time this text beginning in verse 11. It says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. We're going to be talking to Christian people today as we talk about what a father we have. Let's pray. Father, we come before thee now. We thank you for the, the opportunity to look at this passage and others, uh, to get your heart on your people. And Father, I just pray that we would realize how cherished we are in your eyes. And Father, that we would think correctly in our relationship with thee. Help us now, for we ask it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 
We talked about this last time, and I even mentioned an illustration at the outset about the lighthouse keeper who kept this lighthouse a couple of miles off of shore for a month at a time or more and so missed his children that at certain times of the day he would turn his telescope toward the mainland. His kids would be out in the yard playing and he'd just stare at them and love them from a distance. And I said, what a, what a picture of how God from heaven looks at us and perhaps loves us like that. There are many Christians today who are skewed in their thinking about God. They, they have gotten twisted in their thinking, messed up in, in their impression of God. And, and this is the first thing that the devil attacks, I think, many times after we become a child of God, maybe even before then. In fact, this was the first thing we find way back in Genesis 3 that the devil uses to taint the minds of Adam and Eve. As he slimes his way onto the the pages of, of the Bible, we find that immediately he casts a question mark over God's head by telling Eve, yea, hath God said, is God really giving it to you straight? Does God really mean what he says? And poisoning her mind in the process. You know, we have people today that think God cannot be approached, that you cannot have a relationship with him. I've mentioned before that uh, the God Allah of the world of Islam, the God of the Koran, is a, and they would tell you this, he's too high and he's too lofty to mess with his creation. He is, he is unconcerned, he is aloof, he is, and he's continually mad as well. But that is not the God of the Bible. And maybe you think God is like that. Maybe you think you can't please God. There's a number of ways to look at God, but there's a number of ways that are imbalanced in looking at God. It's important that we have a healthy mindset about the Lord. And what we need to do is we need to read what the, the Lord says about himself. And we find some words here in our text, Jeremiah 29. Notice again, if you would, verse number 11. God says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. We find from this passage that God, first of all, thinks of us. And then he thinks wonderful things about us. We saw last time a verse over in Zephaniah 3.17 that says, He will rejoice over thee. He will sing over thee with joy. Can you imagine God, kind of like a father, a new father, over a, a, a little crib, singing over his child with joy? That's how we find our God feeling about us. 1 John 4.10 says, Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God first loved us. And God does not love us based upon our performance. Sometimes we think, well, I'm being good. God loves me. Uh Uh-oh, I've been naughty. God doesn't love me now. But the truth is, He loved us before we even got saved. Think about that. Nothing lovable about us before salvation. The Bible says, but God commendeth His love toward us. That means proved His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. Romans 15.7 tells us to receive one another, therefore, as Christ hath received us. How has Christ received us? Unconditionally. He loved us before we even got saved. Unconditionally. You know, there's many, many examples in the Bible of fatherly love to unworthy children. And it's, it's, it boggles the mind as I read about a, a, just a scoundrel in the Bible by the name of Absalom. 
Absalom, the son of David, murdered his half-brother. So he's killed now one of David's sons, but David still loves him. Absalom runs from David, and he goes to a, a heathen country, and, and there the heart of, of David longs to go to Absalom, but he doesn't. And finally, Absalom weasels his way back into the Holy Land, and he settles off at a distance there, but he starts intercepting the people that are coming to see David outside the palace, and, and he starts to surmount this, this treason against his own dad. What a rat. And finally, there's this insurrection, and, and the hearts of the people are now toward Absalom, and David has to flee town because his own son wants to kill him. We find out that Ahithophel... One of the counselors of Absalom comes in and he says, you know, if we just take all the men out there uh, and, and just go after David, the rest of the men will surrender and we can just kill your dad. And Absalom says, I like that idea. That's what a rat, an industrial strength rat, this guy really was. But David still loved him. And when David sends his men out to battle, he says, now deal gently with the young man for my sake. He tells Joab that. That didn't mean anything to Joab. And so out in battle, we find out that Joab kills Absalom. One of the the few things you might like about Joab in the Bible. But we find even then David is saying, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, would to God I had died for thee. You see the unending affection and love of a father for an unworthy child. You find even in the story of the prodigal, Here's this son, doesn't give a wit that his dad has worked hard and and, and earned all this that that has uh, benefited him. And he just comes along and says, give me the inheritance. Give it to me. And so he takes it and he goes out and he squanders it. And we find out that after he's learned his lesson, he comes uh, stumbling back home. And in Luke 15, 20, it says that he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. Well, I'll tell you, these are pictures in the Bible of the heart of a dad or a father for a child. Now, last time we saw some wonderful qualities about our Heavenly Father, ways that He has toward us, and we saw, first of all, He's caring. Remember that? He is genuinely caring. The psalmist said in Psalm eighty-six, fifteen, Thou art a God who is full of compassion and gracious. God is compassionate. God is caring toward us. In fact, we see in Matthew 10.30 that Christ says the very hairs of our head are numbered, that we are more valued than many sparrows, that a sparrow can't fall to the ground without him caring, and, and are we going to fall without him caring? We find that God cares about us. He's caring. But secondly, we found out that he's clement, meaning merciful. God is merciful. In Nehemiah 9.17 The prophet says, Thou art a God who is ready to pardon. Our God is ready to pardon us, anxious to pardon, anxious to restore the relationship with us. He is clement. We see thirdly that he is calm. He is calm. Maybe you grow up with a a dad that was less than calm. Maybe a dad who was even angry. A dad who was stressful and uptight. And, And we do tend to associate God with the kind of dad who raised us. It's hard not to. But our Heavenly Father is calm. And He continually says, Fear not. Throughout the Bible, Fear not. Be not afraid. Uh, Come unto Me and I'll give you rest and all this. And He tells Abraham in Genesis, Fear not. He tells Moses in Deuteronomy, Fear not. He tells Gideon in Judges, Fear not. We have a God who is calm. But fourthly, we saw that He is conscious. He is conscientious of us. Look in Psalm 116, if you would. 
we find out that our God cares about us, watches us, is conscious of us at all times. And it's important that we understand he's continually watching us because he cares about us. Here's the psalmist, and he's talking about why he loves the Lord. In verse 1, he says, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications, because he hath inclined his ear unto me. Therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. He says, I love the Lord because he hears me and his ear is cupped and his head is bent from heaven toward me because God is conscious of us at all times. Now, today as we look a little further and we dig a little further into the scriptures, I want us to discover further what kind of a father we have. This is so important because a lot of Christian people have even believed a lie a lie about God, a lie that's been formulated by some authority in their life, a lie that has been formulated perhaps by a false cult, or maybe uh, their own heart has deceived them. But for whatever reason, they've been lied to and embraced the lie. One of the best Christians I ever know, Dr. Richard M. Hayes, who's in heaven with the Lord now, taught me something extremely valuable. Years ago, he said, really all counseling is, is dispelling error or dispelling the lie with the truth. And so what we need to do is take the Word of God and take the truth and obliterate the lie with it by looking into the Bible. So let's do that. Maybe you have a distorted impression of God. Maybe you believed a lie and you've got your your impression of Him from the world or some other place. But let the Scriptures tell the truth. What kind of a father do we have? Well, let me just say, first of all, He's tender. He is tender. Now, fatherhood requires a balance. It's a tough job, guys. I understand that. But it requires a balance of discipline and love. It requires a balance of of justice and mercy. Two things that meet and kiss each other, according to the psalmist. There there has to be toughness and there has to be a tenderness. There are times when there is discipline necessary and we must mete out justice. And it's got to be toughness because we can't be pushovers. Kids hone in on that real quick. They pick up on that real quick. They know exactly the extent of their boundaries and how much rope they have and where that circle goes out to, and they will run it right out to the limit. In fact, I remember a neighbor kid and his dad, I'll just call the kid Tommy, that wasn't his name, but I can still remember the dad hollering at Tommy, Tommy, you're going to get it, Tommy, get in here, Tommy, you're going to get the belt, you're going to get discipline, you're going to spanking one of these days, And, and Tommy never did. He knew it was all talk, and dads, we can't be all talk. There is a time for justice. There is a time for toughness. There is a time for a discipline. When when there's nothing else that is being effective, we need to do that. And I've raised kids, and I know that. But there are a number of dads who are out of whack in this area, and they don't apply the tenderness. The tenderness is not there. They've forgotten it. And, And I have seen dads, and it's too much rough stuff. Too much rough stuff. Harsh and mean, and they forget to show God's tender side. But God has a tender side. Look in Psalm 169 if you would. Our God can be mild and sensitive and uh, delicate and, and gentle and tender. And I'm thankful for that. There are times we need that. Here in Psalm 69 and in verse number 16, the psalmist says, Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Thy tender mercies. 
We have a God who can be tender. Tender. Look in Psalm 103, if you would. Again, there's a place for discipline, toughness. We know that side of God, but we need to balance the equation, don't we? And see this other side of God here. In Psalm 103, we find this truth in verse 4. Speaking of God, it says, Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Tender mercies. I'm thankful for that. Look in Psalm 145, as long as we're in the Psalms. Certainly we could look at a number of them here. But we find out that our God is tender, and I'm so thankful for that. Do you realize you have a tender Heavenly Father? In Psalm 145 and in verse number 9, it says, The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. Notice, the Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. I'm going to quickly quote this one to you from Psalm 51. And this is when David had messed up with Bathsheba. But he says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Have you ever felt that way? Have mercy upon me, O God. Boy, I'm glad it's it's times we, we have a tender God. By the way, the Lord restored David there. And, and parents, when we have a falling out with kids, we need to seek that restoration, not staying at arm's length. Look in Psalm 119, if you would. Here's the chapter of the Bible that talks about the Word of God, but here's a word from the Word of God about the tenderness of the Lord. In Psalm 119, look at verse 156. It says, Great are thy tender mercies, O Lord. Quicken me according to thy judgments. We have a tender, heavenly Father. You know, my dad had a, a wonderful blend of toughness and tenderness. I, I really learned a lot from him. We laid him to rest just a week ago yesterday. And I, I, I uh, actually saw him for the last time alive about two weeks ago yesterday. He was kind of in a comatose state, but um, I didn't want to take a picture of him as he looked, but I did... Uh, pull his hand up to mine and took a picture of our hands holding each other. And I thought of all the times that hand had disciplined me, but all the times that hand had embraced me. Whenever we, uh, we bid fair adieu, it was with a kiss and it was with an I love you, Dad. And uh, that's what I told him the last time I saw him as well and gave him that kiss. And, and I love the tenderness of fatherhood, of fatherhood. In fact, I was holding my grandson earlier today and, and kissing his little face and rubbing his little head and I thought of the, the many times I held my kids and they were drinking a bottle or something and their little hand would come up and just pat me on the cheek. There's just something so tender about that. Our Heavenly Father is described as tender in these verses. Look in Isaiah chapter 53 if you would. I'm thankful for a tender Heavenly Father. Kids need tenderness and at times parents need reminding of that. We need to portray our Lord rightly. I remember years ago, I was probably oh, in my early teens, and we were eating out at a restaurant near Crookston. And our family was at a table, and there was another family at another table, and there was probably a, a little girl in that high chair, maybe two or three, and she had knocked over her milk or something and spilled it all over the place. And the dad really got upset and was uh, yelling at her and really gave it to her. 
And little tears began to well up in her eyes and stream down her cheeks. And all of a sudden, this little verse from the other, or little voice from the other table says, But Daddy, I'm just a little girl. And all us boys were going, Oh, that was cute. And it was cute. I'm just a little girl. You know, fatherhood needs to have its tender side. And I hope uh, you had a tender dad or you have a tender dad or you are a tender dad. But if you didn't have one, we have a tender Heavenly Father. And we find here in Isaiah 53, that great prophetic chapter about the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts out in verse 1 by saying, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, Christ, shall grow up before him, his father, as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. A tender plant. We find here deity is tender. In fact, in verse 7, he's compared to a lamb. A lamb brought to the slaughter. We have deity's tender side here. We have a tender God. Jesus Christ was tender, by the way. I think the reason children flocked to him is he was tender. And the disciples were saying, kids, get away from him. And he was going, no, suffer the little children to come unto me. And he was like a kid magnet. And they're always around him and on his lap. And he was hugging them. That's our Savior. Reminds me of a, a Sunday school teacher, an old fella. He was kind of crotchety and, and grouchy. And, and he was talking about uh, Jesus being angry with sinners and, and glaring at sinners and, and, and rigid with sinners, stern with them. And a little girl in her innocence, a little five-year-old, raised her hand. And she said, but teacher, if, if Jesus had a mean face like yours, the little kids wouldn't have come to him. And how true. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes, Right? There must have been something about Christ, very tender so much. And they say you can't fool kids. You can't. He loved children. Children loved him. He was tender. In 2 Corinthians 10, 1, the apostle says to a local church there, I beseech you by the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus Christ. Our God is tender. Our God is gentle. Back when the Battle of Gettysburg was taking place, it was like the first or second day into it, and it was, it was going bad for the South. There was a Union soldier who just hated the South. He hated the Confederates. And somehow he had gotten behind enemy lines and wounded and was lying amongst the dead. He was the only guy wearing blue amongst all these guys wearing gray. And they came up to start uh, taking up their dead, and, and uh, he thought, oh no, I'm going to be taken as a prisoner here. And, and so he shouted out, hurrah for the Union! And he saw this silhouette coming up, and he recognized him as General Robert E. Lee himself. And Lee got down off his horse and walked over to him, and he thought, I'm going to be a run-through with the sword. But that's not what happened at all. Lee got down right next to him, and, and with a look of compassion and concern on his face, and even a tear welling up in his eye, he patted him, and he said, Son, I, I hope you get better. We'll do everything we can to help you heal up. And that young man said, I'll never forget that look of compassion in the eyes of Robert E. Lee. Charles Spurgeon said, a Christian is the gentlest of men, but he is still a man. A Christian is the gentlest of men, but he is still a man. The psalmist said of God, thy gentleness hath made me great. We have a gentle, a tender Heavenly Father. In fact, you're in Isaiah. Turn back to Isaiah 40, if you would, just a few pages. And note with me a famous verse. I can think of a song as I read this verse that's been written from this passage. In Isaiah 40, and in verse number 11, the prophet says of God, 
He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. What a picture we have of our Heavenly Father. He is tender. But secondly, he is tolerant. He is tolerant. Now, let me just say at the outset here, the goal of the Christian life is not to be too lenient or not to be too hard-nosed. There has got to be a balance here. We've got to balance the equation. We find extremes out there in the world of theology and religion. We find liberalism where they don't even believe in the virgin birth of Christ. They don't even believe in His sinless life. They don't even believe in His bodily resurrection from the grave. And like the Sadducees of old, what a worthless clergy. I mean, what's, what's the point? Go sell cars and do something honest for a living, but get out of the ministry. But you have liberal clergymen like that. And then you have new evangelical uh, clergymen. And, and the, the music in some of those churches is just as worldly as at a rock concert. And, and the standards are nowhere. There's, there's bad Bible versions being used with the devil's fingerprints all over them. And everything's just watered down and they're yoking up with unscriptural outfits and, and, and defying the Word of God and, 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 and embracing uh, love at the expense of truth. Totally out of balance because the end justifies the means. I've often said if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And you have that group not standing and they're falling for everything. And the bottom line of that, that crowd is compromise. And I believe they're out of balance. But here's our, here's our danger, folks. While we're standing for truth, and we ought to be standing for truth, we can go to the extreme and get so narrow and get so uh, prideful even that we have the mindset, if you're not a clone of me, if you're not a carbon copy of me, I'm not going to fellowship with you. You're of the devil. I've got preacher friends, folks, who might not be quite as strong on repentance as I am, but I still love them. And uh, they've preached in this pulpit in the last few months. And I'm going to still fellowship with them. I've got folks, uh, friends, who may not be as strong on the, the local church as I am, or the, the bride as I am, but they're not of the devil. Um, maybe I have some friends, and they don't stand where I stand on, on, on courtship and marriage and, and, and indigenous missions uh, and uh, pastoral ethics and whatever it might be, but I'm not going to throw them under the bus. See what I'm saying? We've got to have a balance here. You know, some men make a, a ministry of, of, of scraping and fussing and feuding and, and uh, arguing over little things like, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, who cares? Honestly, uh, we don't know. We think we know. But does it really matter? Does it really matter what the toes, the toes on the image of the beast in Daniel mean? Are we going to split hairs over that stuff while the world's going to hell? I remember a poster I saw years ago by Brother Milton Martin when we were having a missions conference in the old building. He hung it up on the wall. And it was two preachers on the ground. And the Bible was open in front of them. And they had a hair out and a knife. And they were splitting that hair while there were these heathen looking in through the window going, What about us? Boy, a picture is worth a thousand words, isn't it? I'll never forget that picture. It said it all. Now, we continually battle to know what to stand for and what to stand against, and we try as a, a local church to be balanced here. Listen, there's a time to be long-suffering. There's a time to be tolerant. There's a time uh, to be patient, and God knows when. Our God knows when to be tolerant. In fact, Look in, in Luke chapter 9, and let me show you our God in action, God the Son here, helping his disciples to find their balance. 
We find earlier on here that the apostles were trying to cast out uh, devils and they couldn't do it. They hurt themselves. And, and then they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You think they'd have been a little humble after that, that situation with the devils. They weren't. You think they'd have been embarrassed. But uh, now they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. And, and maybe looking to make a comeback because of what happens here in Luke chapter 9. We pick it up in verse number 49. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followed not us. Now, right here, John's expecting a pat on the head. He's messed up. Uh, he's expecting to uh, earn some brownie points with the Lord and to say, what a good boy am I. We saw this guy who was casting out devils. He's not in our club. And so we told him, knock it off. Well, in verse 50, Jesus said unto him, forbid him not. For he that is not against us is for us. Wow. All right. Now, we find here that the disciples aren't balanced, and Jesus Christ is helping to straighten them out. But it doesn't end there. In verse number 52, it says, Jesus sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. So here they are. It's not their day. <laughs> They're just striking out on all fronts. But they can't find the balance here. Here's the Savior, though. He has the perfect balance. The perfect balance of tolerance and yet justice, something we grossly lack I know I've seen it over and over again that when somebody messes up with us, uh, we throw them under the bus, we jump on them, we condemn them, and we especially have a problem with them if they're just not like us in every single area. You know, like so-and-so doesn't have it all together like I do. At least we don't say it, but we think it. Years ago, I was at uh, a teen camp, and there were a couple of older preachers there who were old, old friends from different areas who were together at that same location. And, and here I am, the young guy, as we're driving around the car, I'm listening to these gentlemen, and, and I'm just kind of trying to learn. And they're bantering back and forth, playful, playfully for the most part, but kind of chiding each other about maybe areas that one might be off in, and uh, bantering about uh, jabbing the other guy about what he might be off in. And there was one preacher especially who just was, was he was not letting up between the two, and the other one was just kind of not saying much and taking it, and, and that one preacher just wouldn't let off him. And finally... The other preacher says, Brother, he said, if you and I sin the same, we'll get along just great. In other words, we all have our flaws, don't we? We all have our imperfections. And what it boils down to is we're sinners, but if we sin the same, we'll get along just great. I've never forgotten that. That left an impression upon me. We condemn others if they're not exactly like us. The American Jewish Society years ago polled 1,500 people and tried to get the pulse of our nation from those 1,500 diff different ethnic groups and asked them to rate between 1 to 10 certain nationalities, the Italian, the Chinese, the black, the Spanish, the Irish, and so on, and, and, and give each one a number between 1 and 10 of how you rate them. Don't put your name on it. We're not going to judge you for how you do it. And, and so they... The 1,500 were giving, 
you know, numbers to various ethnic groups. Well, the, the Jewish uh, society, American Jewish society, had slipped in an a ethnic group called the Wissians and asked, what do you think of the Wissians? There are no Wissians. They just put them there to see how they would rate them and found out that most people rated them really low because they'd never heard of them. We don't know who they are. We don't understand them. So we don't agree with them. And it, it really shows our depraved sense of tolerance, folks. We're much like that. But our Father has a perfect tolerance. And He sets a standard. And we read about in the Word of God. And He knows what to oppose. He knows what to forbear and to put up with. You know, Jonah wanted Nineveh destroyed. Remember that? And God said, no, this is not the time. They've repented. And He said... Uh, should I not spare Nineveh, that great mighty city wherein there are, there are 120,000 children there? You know, we have a perfect heavenly Father. And I don't understand this passage over in Acts, but I think it's in chapter 17 where it says, the time of this ignorance God winked at. God knows what to wink at. God knows what to let go, if you will. And He knows what not to let go. And, and let me just say, if God is currently dealing with you and there's chastisement, or blessing, rest assured, our Heavenly Father is perfect in His tolerance. He is tender, He is tolerant, and then finally and quickly, He is a teacher. Our God is a teacher. A couple of months ago, I needed to get a couple of trees, and so I, I went north of town, and uh, I've got a guy out there who has a nursery. This guy is long retired, and he was the head of horticulture at a local university for some time. And he's just the, the little Yoda of, of uh, trees. He's just a, a, a wealth of knowledge, kind of like. And, and I just love going in there and asking him tree questions. And, and he is more than helpful, more than happy uh, to tell me all that I want to know and more than I want to know about trees and shrubbery and horticulture and things like that. He's a teacher. You know, if you're a teacher and you don't have to teach, that's a very unselfish thing. Uh, years ago, when, when Richard Nixon died, they were interviewing his, his brother, his younger brother, who I had to smile because he looked just like him. And they were asking, could you tell us some things about your brother? And he said, oh, well, Dick was like this and Dick was like that. And uh, he said, but always the teacher, always teaching. And the, the commentator stopped and he said, wait, really? He said, oh, yeah, he was always more than willing to stop and help you along and to teach you. You know, again, a very, very unselfish thing. Well, our God is a teacher. Our Father is willing to teach us as His children. Look in the Psalms, if you would, again. Psalm chapter 25. We find continually and patiently our Heavenly Father willing to teach us. I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes I get impatient, and sometimes I, I feel like I could do it faster myself. It, it would be quicker if I just did it rather than teach somebody how to do it but not our, our Heavenly Father. Here in, in Psalm 25 and in verse 12, it says, What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. Him shall he teach. God's willing to teach us. Look in Psalm 32, just a few pages forward. In Psalm 32, and I love this verse, verse 8, God says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Have you ever done that, parents? Where you're trying to get your kids to do something, kind of give them the eye. Just, 
and guide them with that. You, you give them that motion. You give them that signal. They know exactly what to do. We find God saying that. He said, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. As long as we're in the Psalms, turn to Psalm 71 if you would. We have a heavenly Father who is willing to teach us. And I'm thankful for that. In Psalm 71, we find this truth in verse number 17. The psalmist says, O God, Thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared Thy wondrous works. Notice, God willing to teach us from our youth. You know, when our Lord walked this earth, He was continually teaching. We find verses like Matthew 5, 2, where it says, when he had set his disciples before him, he taught them. He taught them. We find in Mark chapter 6, I'll just read this to you from verse 34. The Bible says, in Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Our Lord was a teacher. In fact, turn to John, if you would. The Gospel of John in the 8th chapter. Remember when Nicodemus came out to see Jesus by night? And he said, Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these things that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus Christ was known as a teacher. Here in John chapter 8, in verse number 1, it says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. He is a teacher. Now, Christ ascended back up to heaven, but after he did, I, I picture kind of a tagging off taking place. And now the Holy Spirit has come to be our teacher. In fact, look in John 14, just a few pages forward. We find our Savior here foretelling that God is not done with teaching his, his, his children. And we find here in John 14, this verse, verse 26. Jesus says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. We have a God who continues to teach us. 1 Corinthians 2.13 mentions, The Holy Ghost teacheth us. Why? Because God's willing to teach us. Even in the the millennium, we find in Isaiah 54, 13, it says, all children shall be taught of Him. And then this verse in Micah, I'll just read it to you. In Micah 4, and in verse number uh, 12, no, that's not it. Micah, well, it says something about teaching anyway. Trust me. Oh, it is. Verse 2, I think it is. Many nations shall come and say, come, And let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob and He will teach us of His ways and we will walk in His paths for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notice even in the millennial kingdom our God will still be teaching us. I'm saying that God is a teacher. God is a teacher. He's teaching Solomon there back in, in, in the first Kings. He's teaching the Jews in the desert there in the Pentateuch. He's teaching uh, Joshua with these 12 stones. They're going to mean something. He's teaching Isaiah with this potter's vessel and this basket of figs. He's teaching Ezekiel with these two sticks and this, this, these pillars and, and with parables. God teaches us. And God has given us this book, by the way, 
to teach us. We have a Heavenly Father who teaches. He knows the value of teaching. Somebody said, give me fish and I'll eat for a day. Teach me to fish and I'll eat for a lifetime. And that's our Heavenly Father. He patiently teaches us. Think of the investment that He has made in you and made in me when He saved us. And now He comes along. He's tender. He's tolerant. He teaches us. And it's no wonder we find this said by the prophet Jeremiah in our text of Jeremiah 29.11. God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil. To give you an expected end. That's the kind of father we have. What a father. What a heavenly father we have. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.